You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Religion can be a third rail when you're trying to teach it from a historical point of view. And making history interesting can be really hard when you're competing for attention. But stories, well, they capture the imagination. And these days, teachers have a lot more resources, interactive and multimedia tools that help curate content to bring history alive. It's one of the reasons why I was so intrigued to hear about the Uncivil Religion Project, a collaboration between the National Museum of American History and the University of Alabama's Religion Department. A year ago, as the events were unfolding, I reached out to Peter Manso. He's a religion scholar, author, and historian. We've had him on the show several times. He's also the Lilly Endowment Curator of American Religious History at the National Museum of American History at the Smithsonian. On January 6th, 2021, I was asking if he had any comments, and he replied quickly and succinctly, it's too early. He told me that not long after January 6, 2021, he and colleagues stepped back and took a look at the amount of material that had a religious theme. And they decided that a more significant endeavor was required. With a grant from the Henry Luce Foundation, Dr. Jerome Kopolsky was hired as a consulting scholar. And then a partnership was formed with the University of Alabama's Department of Religion. And that's when Dr. Mike Altman, a professor of the University of Alabama's Religion Department, teamed up with Kapolsky to serve as a co-director of the collaboration. I spoke to him by phone in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I understand that this digital archive is born out of a desire to create a way for people to talk about and explore what happened, regardless of what their partisan or religious identity is. Yeah, I think the authors, we gave them kind of free reign to argue what they wanted to. The way it worked is we had gathered a bunch of different pieces of digital media, videos, images, um, even some FBI files that we, you know, there's way more we could have dug through. And we kind of just gave one thing to each person and said, like, how would you explain this or what's important about this image or this video to students, to a general audience, right? Like, use your expertise to kind of explain this to me like I'm five. Or someone who just doesn't get religion, right? I mean, right. you don't or, have yeah, to be five. Exactly. I'm thinking about so many people I know who I imagine including young people who be attending university who don't yeah. come from a home with, per se, the cultural and religious literacy, if I can use that word, of dominant traditions. I think that's exactly right. And I think what the authors did well is they really did a good job of both the religious literacy side, but then also the kind of analysis. I think the good example is there was a guy who showed up at various parts of the Capitol that day who was dressed as Moroni, who is this warrior from the, the Book of Mormon. The first time I saw this image of this guy was someone on Twitter saying, like, there's someone there dressed as a Roman centurion. And then someone else was saying, no, 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 that guy's, here's the video, he says he's Moroni. And Benjamin Park does this great thing where he explains, first of all, like, this guy's not a centurion, here's what he is, here's the story he's drawing on, like... And so that anyone who has no background in understanding Mormonism or the LDS Church can make sense of it. But then he gives this lovely history of how the church shifted in the late 20th century 
politically to become a stalwart part of the Republican coalition. I'm curious, how do you envision using this if you are the facilitator of a civic community or you're a social studies teacher in a school? How would you recommend somebody use it? I think I would encourage, whether it's a a social studies teacher or someone in any kind of community that wants to look at this, I would encourage whoever's sort of leading it to just spend some time exploring the site. I think of it more as a... um, a buffet or or a playground than a kind of curriculum. The way we built the site, and, and I'll take a little bit of credit here because I was the one who sort of designed and handled the site along with uh, the e-tech people in our College of Arts and Sciences and, and Jerry Wairinga, who runs the digital lab for us. But it was to make sure that every page leads to another one. So everything you read at the bottom is or in the middle of it is going to point you somewhere else. So it almost has this Alice in Wonderland feel where you'll be halfway through the article and you'll see on the sidebar like a link to another article or there's a media file embedded in the essay that takes you to another gallery. Glory, glory, I really want people to kind of explore it in that way and sort of go down the slide. And when you get out the slide, you see the monkey bar. So you jump on those and then you realize that over there, there's a swing set. Do you feel the motion and the kind of like head on a swivel swirl of the event? sat through and watched hundreds of these short videos that people posted on Parler and Twitter and Facebook. It's just this kind of constant motion and something happening everywhere. And you see the same thing in different videos from different angles. What I would like to see people do in the classroom is sort of take one gallery or one one gallery or a couple galleries and, and let students or people in a group kind of like look through them and see what jumps out to them, right? Because we have 107 pieces of digital media from January 6th taken out of what could have been thousands. And so sort of letting people marinate in it, letting students maybe give them a gallery, give them some guidelines because it could be overwhelming and then see what questions it raises. I think this project raises a lot more questions than it answers. Like it will explain Moroni, but it'll also raise a bunch of questions about like, you know, what does it mean to have a flag that says Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president? Like we don't answer that question. We have some guesses. Some of the essays point to it. But I don't think we ever settle on like an explanation of how or why that happens. And so I hope folks will use it to come up with a lot of questions and then turn to those interpretive essays to try to begin to find some answers for stuff. Like there's a section on Christian nationalism. So if that jumps out to you, there's a section on the kind of religious pluralism that looks at how it wasn't just white evangelicals or white Protestants here. There's all sorts of other people involved in this event. And then like the last section is it's my personal favorite set of essays because it argues that there's stuff that doesn't look religious that has religion behind it. Mm. Um, so for example, Cody Musselman, who's a PhD from Yale, 
she wrote one of my favorite essays in the whole collection is, is hers about a video of these young men, young white men climbing the wall into the Capitol. And if you know the Capitol, there's a staircase not too far to the side, but they're going to climb the wall to get up in, right? And the title of the essay is You Don't Storm the Cop- Capitol with the Stairs. And she talks about how certain forms of Christian, muscular Christianity, and, and even also New Age, New Thought stuff has influenced and shaped physical culture in America and fitness culture in America, and how that's why the way these men are climbing the wall reflects this larger fitness culture that has roots in all sorts of different religious forms. It's that kind of like third level of like behind this stuff, there's still religion you might not see besides just like, you know, the giant Christian flag uh, in front. When you describe that, it sounds like peeling an onion. There are layers and layers of ways of looking at and thinking about what happened on January 6th, but also what continues. These movements that you're referencing, many of them have gained even more traction. Individuals who are clicking through uncivil religion, is there a way for them to get a sense of the post-January 6th narratives that emerged? It's been really challenging. It took us almost a year from gathering stuff you saw on Twitter with a hashtag to what we produced. So it took us a year to kind of just to make sense of the things that happened that day. Um, There's a couple of places where we start to see the kind of longer tail of this event. There's an essay from Sama Chowdhury about Jenna Ryan. She's now become uh, a social media famous, I think now in in prison for her uh, trespassing in the Capitol. That essay kind of follows her story. And it was one of the later ones that got finished because we wanted to see kind of how her story ended. Um, and so it goes from the video she made on the way into the Capitol. You guys, can you believe this? I'm not messing around. I will, when I come to sell your house, this is what I will do. USA, I will f-ing sell USA, your house. USA! 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 Here we are, in the name of Jesus. In the name of five all names. In the name of Jesus which is in itself really fascinating all the way through to a video she made a couple of days before she was going to go turn herself in to go to prison. Yes, I'm going to prison. It is true. I'm going to prison. Prison. Yeah. I think I'm going to do a lot of yoga in prison. Um, it's not going to be like, it's federal prison, so it's not going to be like the penitentiary. You know, I can't wait to get it over with. I want it over with so that I can move on with my life and start taking care of my business. Okay? Talk to you soon. Bye. Sama does a great job in that essay of kind of tracing the long arc of the events of that day have had and how to make sense of them and and the role of social media and all of that and of certain form of of Christianity and certain notions of, of womanhood and Christianity that are all going on in that. What I'm particularly interested in and hope we can dig into more is what's changed about the tellings of that day from various sides. How do we remember it? How that has changed? What I would think of as a kind of myth of January 6th and how those myths have changed over time. Mm. It doesn't tell us much about what actually happened that day, but it tells us a lot about what's happening now and where things might be headed. It's interesting, the casting of the individuals who stormed the Capitol and sought to interrupt and stop the uh, election process 
being hailed as patriots, being hailed as heroes, being hailed as martyrs. And on the other side, being described as individuals who pose an existential threat to democracy for what they represent to come in the future. Those two very, very distinct and different narratives are, I think, unfolding in, as you say, real time. How do you create space in your classroom for students who may hold those two very diametrically opposite interpretations of January 6th? How will you be creating a space for them to talk about it? Yeah, uh, we were just having this conversation in a faculty meeting this morning on Zoom. So, um, and All right. We were, so you, we it's ta- fresh in your mind. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, colleagues and I were discussing. And I think everyone, um, I think, you know, teaching is such an art that everyone has to figure out what works for them. Um, but I had a colleague who was talking about using some of these essays in their Introduction to Religious Studies course. Um, and there were some faculty who were saying, like, oh, it'd be better to steer clear of these. You know, it's hard to do them in an intro course. Some of us who feel like, you know, I kind of feel like, the intro course is our biggest, widest audience. It's a general ed course. It counts for humanities credit. Like, this is when I get my chance to teach the engineer or something. So, like, I want to bring everything. I think if you start the conversation with what I would think of as, like, primary sources, primary texts, right, with just what do, you, what do we do with this image? What do we do with this video, right? Then um, an essay, you can Google the author and try to figure out what their ideology is. But a, a, an image, right, or a video you kind of have to sit with it, right? And you can make critiques of like who shot this or whatever. But that's to me is the way to start, right? Especially some of the galleries of like people. Those are really fascinating because you're hearing directly from the people. There's one of the Proud Boys marching uh, down to the Capitol and they stop right outside. I think it's the Garfield Memorial and they say a prayer and you can hear the prayer they say. To me, that's a great piece because like we don't have to talk about we're not going to critique some author's take on this, but we can start with why would you pray? What are they praying? What kind of prayer is this? What's happening with this? So that's an easy way in. And then once you've got students able to talk about it in that way, you can bring in essays and the essays can be one take, but everyone's gotten a sense that, okay, if I can have a take about what's happening here, if I can offer some analysis, what's happening here. And I think the the big key for teaching this stuff is always making sure I'm using new terms that redescribe what's happening. This is what my colleague Richard Newton said this morning. So I'm not going to use the terms that the people in the video are saying. I'm not going to use terms that you would hear on any cable news network. But I'm going to use the technical terms that we use in the study of religion, myth, ritual, whatever, right? And use those and give students tools for kind of redescribing what's happening or analyzing what's happening. That leaves space where it's, okay, we're doing something different, right? We have different language. We have different tools. We have different goals here. So I think that combination of going to kind of more primary sources like we have in the galleries and framing it with a larger vocabulary or analytical tools of religious studies in the classroom works really well. How do you deal with the very real context students come into the classroom with and the phenomena of confirmation bias? That's a really tough question. I think it's a combination of being honest and humble, honest about like, I don't understand why someone would do this or, or I don't, I have to work to understand, I guess, because it's my job to try to understand. I think the more that one can articulate both sides, even with the caveat of like, I don't think this is true or I think this is based on a misreading of history, but I can give you the internal logic, right? That opens up space where if you can do that, a student can say like, okay, that clearly this professor may not agree with me, but they at least are attempting uh, to be fair or to understand right i don't think that's where it stops like i think there's spaces to be um analytical and kind of like 
critical in that theoretical sense of trying to explain why people do what they do, right? Um, but I think it's a tough needle to thread. And I think most students that I've taught, they don't come to a class looking for a fight. They come to a class either not sure what they're looking for or looking to figure something out different about themselves and the world around them. I have yet to run into really militantly argumentative students who kind of want to make it a fight. I think most of them want to figure stuff out. Hmm. I think the key is making it very clear from the beginning that what we're doing in a religious studies classroom is different. We have different goals. We have different questions. We have different language. It's different than what they're doing on the internet or on Twitter. It's different than what they're doing in a, in a seminary or in any kind of religious organization. And it is not our job to decide what's good religion and bad religion. And the uncivil religion project is not about, oh, look at this bad example of religion. And that comes from my commitment in the classroom. There's a famous essay by Jonathan Z. Smith, a great historian of religion, where he talks about the mass suicide at Jonestown. And he kind of says, like, we have to set aside for a moment the horribleness of this event to understand what happened so we can understand why people do these sorts of things. And the moral judgment has to be set aside briefly, right? And I, I don't think that's the case all the time, but I think if you can make it clear that, like, we're, we're not theologians and we're not ethicists, we're trying to explain human behavior first and foremost, and that we're doing something different, if you make a politically ideological argument in class, it's not going to work because it doesn't answer the questions that I'm asking or the questions that we're asking as a group. So that to me has been my greatest defense against it. Um, but it only takes me saying one stupid thing with somebody with their cell phone on for that to all fall apart, I guess. Hmm. What does success look like for you for this project? Wow. Um, at one point, success was just it was online and working. Um, right? <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think success looks like people are using it. I think a lot of university and college professors kind of always hope that maybe we could reach beyond our classrooms or our our journals and books to actual people or to high school students. And like, I hope maybe this will do that some, and I'll, I'll count that as a success. I would be very remiss if I didn't mention that three of our graduate students who were in my public humanities course this past semester did a lot of the work. I think for me, the fact that they learned so much in that process, the fact that the thing exists, the fact that we've got nationally known scholars of religion like Anthea Butler and Kristen Dumay and Phil Gorski alongside up and coming people who are just out of grad school or in their first job. To me, that all of that is what makes this a success already. Um, and I'm kind of feel like getting to do conversations like this with you and whatever else happens after this is just kind of... Um, Icing on the cake. I'm glad we can beat some icing on the cake. (laughs) (laughs) That's all for this week's show. If you missed any portion, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or using the podcatcher of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, you can help us out by leaving a rating and a review. We need it. It helps others find our show. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music. Our closing music is by Audio Binger. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. 
We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Wherever you are, remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week.